Peter Williams from One O'Clock on RCR, Reality Check Radio. It's a pleasure now to welcome to RCR a woman whom this radio station has been very keen to talk to since we launched six months ago. Dr. Tess Laurie is a South African-born and educated doctor now living in Britain. She is what you might call a double doctor, as she has both a medical degree and a PhD from WITS, the University of the WITS-Vortesrand in Johannesburg. She first became known in New Zealand when she enthusiastically promoted the use of ivermectin as a treatment and as a prophylactic or preventer for COVID-19. She submitted rather to the British Parliament on the matter as the director of EBMC Limited, the evidence-based medical consultancy. She is also part of the World Council for Health and of BIRD, the British Ivermectin Recommendation Development Group. And Dr. Laurie joins me now from her office in Bath. Uh, Tess Laurie, thank you so much for being with us here on RCR. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. I'm actually in London at the moment. It would have been nice to come out to Bath to see you, but sadly, uh, time precludes that. But can I first ask you, uh, what is the current status of ivermectin in Britain? Can it be prescribed by doctors? Well, it can be prescribed off-label, but there, there, there are restrictions to it being used for COVID-19 unless you are immunocompromised, in which case, um, uh, and you're at risk of getting worms, uh, uh, then you then you would be, then a doctor would be free to prescribe it. So at the moment, it is, um, it is being used, but it's being used by people who are making their own health decisions and, uh, and acquiring ivermectin from, you know, various sources, because if they go to their general practitioner, they will not receive it. The, the practitioners have been told not to prescribe ivermectin for COVID-19 or any other reason. And in actual fact, I think many uh, practitioners uh, have, you know, are convinced if they have heard about ivermectin, they think that it's not a safe medicine to use. So, so has it ever been actually banned by British medical authorities for, for, for COVID-19, uh, either prevention or treatment? No, but we've been told ongoing that they are continuing to evaluate. So whenever we've written to the authorities, they've said uh, there isn't sufficient evidence to support its use and uh, and uh, it shouldn't be used and they'll let us know when when there's sufficient evidence. So there, there is a, a trial in the UK called the Principal Trial, which they started doing, or they said they started doing in January 2021, then they announced again in July, in June 2021, that they were starting it and they would be, um, you know, evaluating ivermectin. And still two years on, there's no uh, evidence that's come out that studies never been reported. And this is a study that was supposedly conducted at Oxford. So, there, you know, there's um, continuing. I, I, what we see is just uh, efforts to obfuscate information uh, uh, about ivermectin and uh, and to ignore it it's it's seems to be something that the there's a sort of pretense that there's something being done they're looking into uh whether it works but there's nothing really being done and there's just this effort to to um to you know 
obfuscate the the and, and undermine the evidence that comes out from other sources that are independent of big farming. Yeah, to be honest, I don't know what the current situation is in New Zealand. I suspect it's very similar to Britain, but I know that in the United States and in Australia, uh, the FDA in the US and the TGA, the Therapeutic Goods Administration in Australia, has said that it's all right now to prescribe ivermectin. So there are some places around the world where it can be prescribed for essentially anything, COVID or or other illnesses. Is that what yeah, you're understanding? Yeah, um, yes, but I am aware, certainly there was a case in, in Malaysia. Now, Malaysia, they've made actually, I think, the best progress because the doctors there uh, uh, from, with a group called Martham, um, they actually took the authorities to court and uh, and the judges ruled that it's absolutely, um, you know, absolutely appropriate for doctors to be able to use their judgment and for, for patients to be able to use their judgment too when it comes to ivermectin because it's such a safe old medicine. So um, there were three judges there that ruled in favour of the doctors rather than in favour of the government. So I, I believe the government is still um, able to contest that ruling, but they haven't done it yet. And usually, uh, you know, I think the fact that they haven't done it yet and it's already four, four weeks or so after that ruling makes their position really very uh, less credible than those of the doctors who brought that case. Can you tell me about the study that was conducted? I think it was either a joint study or it was done uh, by a guy called, is it Andrew Hill? Now, this would be a couple of years ago that, that you were involved with, and it was essentially about to be released saying ivermectin is the miracle drug that so many people have suggested it is around the world. But then he had this, well, I won't say a mysterious change of mind because we know darn well why he had the change of mind, but it appears as if he was about to, to say how great ivermectin was in relation to COVID, wasn't he? Yes, well, it's very curious because he, he sort of came and went on the matter. Uh, he was working together with Dr. Pierre Corey and, and Dr. Paul Marek in the U.S. to present evidence before the NIH there on the 8th of January. And he was all about, you know, this is a great drug and uh, it should be used for COVID. And he was very supportive of their presentation. And in his presentation at that time, it showed a 75% reduction in deaths. And uh, and then he was he so he was the WHO consultant so external consultant hired to to do a review of the evidence on ivermectin and funded by Unitaid which uh, is a well, the funding of Unitaid itself is is um, is in question it seems to be um, one of the Gates affiliated organisations and um, and he he's he was putting together his own review, but um, we suggested he come on board and join us to do a Cochrane review because in my experience as an external consultant to the World Health Organization, it's the Cochrane reviews that are the ones that carry the most weight when, when evaluating uh, drugs for clinical practice. And the review that he was doing was not a Cochrane review. So he agreed to come on board to do the Cochrane review. And before we could actually um, publish it. He presented another uh, paper, which was 
completely different um, and posted it on a, what's called a preprint server. So it wasn't submitted to a journal for peer review. It was just put out into the public sphere. And on that paper, it said that ivermectin, it showed a 75% reduction in deaths, um, uh, pooling data from a number of studies. But it said that ivermectin can't possibly be uh, looked at by the, uh, the regulatory bodies until more research is done. Now, at that time, so, so one could say, well, at that time, they started the principal trial, and that trial still hasn't been um, reported yet. So you can see what he did. He kicked the ball down the road very far uh, so that ivermectin could not be, be looked at. In the meantime, the, the new uh, and experimental pharmaceutical remedies and, and um, vaccines were presented in record time uh, without evidence. And uh, and so, you know, that's what happened. The older, safer medicines that, you know, could have been used were absolutely ignored and obfuscated uh, in favor of these, these novel, very expensive uh, remedies. Which have so made billions. Because they work very well. Yes. Uh, the BBC uh, published a story on its website, ironically, from a team inside the BBC called Reality Check. Maybe it was a forerunner of this radio station, I don't know. Uh, but it quotes a guy called Dr Kyle Sheldrick, who says he's not found a single clinical trial which says that ivermectin is effective. This is all part of the big pushback against people like yourself. How do you react to that? What credibility does this Dr Kyle Sheldrick and his team have when it comes to assessing the trials for ivermectin? He's, I'm not sure that he's ever done a Cochrane systematic review before. I don't think he has, and I, I am aware of him receiving corporate funding, so corporate and government funding. So I'm not sure about his credibility. And uh, what we have seen throughout COVID and, and the ivermectin story is the same little group of, of, uh, of um, uh, discreditors, shall we say, the same little group that would be pulled out every time there was something in favor of ivermectin, they would be pulled out to comment uh, to the contrary and to undermine the credibility either of the, the doctor reporting the information uh, or evidence or doing the study or of the uh, evidence itself. And um, and uh, Carl Sheldrick was the individual who was brought out as the so-called expert when, um, when our uh, systematic review came out uh, and uh, they were wishing to undermine it. He appeared on the BBC as well. And uh, I've never been invited to speak on the BBC despite having more than 80 peer-reviewed publications um, among the top 5% of uh, researchers cited on ResearchGate and, uh, and having worked as a guideline methodologist and research consultant for the World Health Organization for more than for 10 years. So, and also with the NHS, I have an honorary contract. So the BBC has never wanted to interview me about the evidence on ivermectin, but um, they interviewed uh, this Carl Sheldrick uh, who I do not, uh, I have no uh, knowledge that he has published much at all. Um, and there were other individuals that were associated with him that uh, were also frequently cited, some of which had never published anything before COVID, <laughs> um, but, but they were managing to get publications in high impact journals like the New England Journal of Medicine. 
you know, um, so one really has to question the whole process now. The scientific journals, um, uh, you know, I used to think that they, that they, they, certain journals, you know, had a, had some integrity, and uh, and it seems like those very journals that we've put on pedestals and thought that they were, you know, the, they they would be reporting the top stuff. They seem to be the ones that are most corrupted. Yes, I I heard the same from a gentleman you're obviously well acquainted with, uh, Dr. Asim Malhotra. He was in New Zealand. Uh, in fact, I think he's there at the moment, still on on, on a speaking tour. And I heard this. Uh, wonderfully impressive uh, presentation from him in Auckland uh, a couple of weeks ago. And he essentially said that there are people who uh, were former editors of, uh, of publications such as the British Medical Journal who now admit that so many of the articles were, were paid for by big pharma. So their credibility in that respect is, is surely shot, isn't it? And one wonders if those magazines can ever get their credibility back. It's so horrendous. In actual fact, you know, even if you look at the work that I did formerly, because I'm no longer doing that systematic review work, I'm full-time committed to the World Council for Health and really trying to advance health for humanity at the moment. But when I when I think back to doing meta-analyses where you're actually taking data from a number of, of trials, clinical trials, and uh, pooling them, um, there was always this question of, well, who funded this study? And most studies, particularly those, you know, for novel cancer drugs, they're all funded by the pharmaceutical industry. And there was always this question hanging over, well, if they're funding the study, can we trust the results? And now I feel quite sure that that one can't trust the results. And so it really raises questions about all those systematic reviews actually that, you know, that are done um, looking at one intervention or another. And we definitely need a different way of evaluating evidence going forward. And it really needs to take into account the experiences of individual doctors and patients. So Dr. Pierre Corey is a gentleman you've you've mentioned already in this interview in a previous life when I was on a radio station, another radio station in New Zealand. Uh, I interviewed uh, Pierre Corey a couple of times, I think during the 2021 calendar year, maybe even the 2020 calendar year. Before Ivermectin came along, uh, he was running the FLCC then and had a protocol, I think he called it the Math Plus protocol, M-A-T-H plus from memory. And I don't know what those letters uh, stand for. But Pierre Corey, of course, then became a major proponent for ivermectin, didn't he? Is he still using the drug in his treatment in the States with COVID patients? Yes, he is. And I believe it's being more widely used as well because people suffering from vaccine injury, if you, if you consider we have a whole range of new illness as a result of the COVID-19 vaccines and no time for randomized controlled trials to see what's going to work and what's not. Not only that, I mean, the, the, the manifestations of illness related to the vaccines are so broad and, and, and various and diverse that um, doctors are really having to, um, to just be pragmatic and go on their experience with regard to what to offer patients. So obviously starting with safe things, uh, safe treatments that have worked with COVID make sense to, to be used with vaccine injury as well because the COVID-19 vaccines cause the body to produce spike protein, which is the 
the, the, the protein that causes much of the damage and symptoms with COVID-19. And it causes much more of the spike protein to be produced than what one would get with COVID-19 and for much longer duration. So ivermectin is one of those on the list that are being used uh, with varying success for people with COVID vaccine injury in combination with other treatments and supplements. Right. What is the current state, uh, Dr. Laurie, the current state of the COVID pandemic outbreak across Britain at the moment? Uh, we've heard of new variants and the like. Are there still literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people still contracting uh, the virus? Well, the COVID pandemic was declared over by the World Health Organization when we were experiencing unprecedented deaths, excess deaths around the world. So, uh, you know, they're varying, um, varying percentages quoted, but being experienced, but, you know, from 15 to 30% increase in excess deaths is occurring around the world. So more people, just to put it frankly, more people are dying now than they did during COVID. But the governments around the world are not speaking about this. And the World Health Organization, the so-called authority on the world health, says COVID is over, but we need to prepare for another pandemic. So, um, so in terms of whether, whether people are experiencing COVID symptoms, yes, people are still experiencing COVID symptoms. It's very commonplace to hear so-and-so has got COVID um, again or whatever. And it's among the vaccinated people. Uh, that we are seeing the COVID symptoms. Um, so many people are saying, well, I'm still getting COVID. Why did I even bother to take a COVID vaccine? They don't seem to work very well. Um, that is the one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is perhaps that the, the COVID vaccines impair immunity rather than boost it. They're actually impairing people's immunity and causing infections, a variety of infections, uh, uh, among those uh, um, is COVID-19. So COVID, in my opinion, is not over at all because we are facing the consequences of the COVID crisis. And, uh, and uh, these include excess death, sudden death, sudden death, you know, um, and a lot of illness. But I just want to also, if I may, just speak about the sudden death, because a lot of people say, you know, when uh, they say, well, people have always died suddenly, there's always been, you know, someone who's dropped dead on a football field or something. But the, 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 the way people are dying and the unprecedented numbers, uh, it really, um, I, I, one just has to hope will wake people up and get the authorities to come clean on what's really going on because people are just dropping dead like that. They're going out for a pizza and their head is falling in their plate and their pizza, you know, it's not like you're suffering an illness and you, you are aware that something's coming. People are dying extremely suddenly. Um, and uh, we need to, to be raising awareness of it and asking these very uncomfortable questions like, are these vaccines really safe? And they certainly are not. So people who do die suddenly, how many autopsies, post-mortems are done in Britain? Uh, do they happen as a matter of course? Can families push for them if they suspect something such as a, a, sudden, a sudden death caused by the vaccine? Can they be, can they they be uh, insisted that, upon? You can 
organize a private um, post-mortem, I believe, but I'm not sure of the numbers. And to be quite honest, you know, having personally experienced loss in the family um, uh, recently, there isn't really a desire when you've just lost somebody in your family there isn't there often isn't a desire to you know you you you're traumatized and you're uh, emotional and mourning and you're not necessarily in a place to be insisting this is due to the vaccine and this is you know and and you want a postmortem that so i would say it's it's um it's not usual for people to insist on uh, having a post-mortem and trying to link it to the vaccine. Uh, but should they wish to do that, there is a, a post-mortem protocol that can be followed, which was um, put together by Professor Arne Burkhardt, who sadly is no longer with us, um, but he, was, uh, he put together a protocol for post-mortems that can be done for people who wish to, to see if the, the death of their loved one is related to the, the COVID-19 vaccine. And, and if anybody wanted to access that, I would be able to, to make that happen. I think the more As people well. that, that do, um, you know, that, that do look into this, the better, because it would help to raise awareness more broadly. Of course, yes. As well as the excess deaths, of course, uh, I know in New Zealand we have a crisis in our hospitals. We have a shortage of doctors, a shortage of nurses, but we also have more patients needing to be in hospital, it seems, than ever before. Nobody in authority seems to want to address the cause of why hospitals have in the last couple of years suddenly become hugely populated. Is that a similar scenario in Britain as well? I know that you've got a, a desperate shortage of health professionals here, but have you got uh, intense strain on the hospital system, do you think, because of the influence of, uh, of COVID vaccination? Yes, absolutely. And we're hearing it from doctors, you know, the number of cancer patients, the number of, of, um, of, uh, people with heart issues and needing tests and you know so there's a there's a huge pressure on hospitals the reasons being uh given for this are not anything related to covid it's it's the strangest thing we've had this massive um obvious crisis in the last three years related to covid and now no one's wants to talk about it um, and they're saying well maybe it's because people couldn't access care over this time they've let their cancers get really, you know, advanced or, you know, so there's there's just a really unwillingness to look at the elephant in the room, which is, could all of this be due to the COVID-19 vaccines, which were and are experimental after all, they have no safety data, and um, there's no control group. So, you know, is what we're seeing a, uh, a, a devastating, disastrous consequence of rolling out an untested novel treatment or vaccine before it was uh, ready and safe. The government, as you say, seems to be tineered over this. Is there any hope, any possibility of some sort of government inquiry in this country? There is a so-called Royal Commission going on in New Zealand, which has very, very limited scope. We're hoping that after the election in a few weeks, 
uh, a certain political party, namely uh, New Zealand First and its leader, may be able to push for a much wider ranging inquiry. But what's happening in in Britain in terms of government inquiry, a, a government inquiry into into COVID, the response and uh, and the the the, uh, the treatment of it. There is some sort of government inquiry going on, but it's funded by and influenced by the wrong people. So it's very much, uh, uh, you know, a kind of a whitewashing of of uh, of of it, rather than inviting the independent people. In actual fact, there was a, a submission by um, by a vaccine injury group, I believe, and and uh, and in fact, a presentation by the lawyer was actually um censored and cancelled so uh, i so there's 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 um selective uh inquiries going on that do not really address the, the problem and are really there to you know to continue to to push the narrative that the um you know we, we were lucky to have the COVID 19 vaccines and um and maybe uh you know and and prepare people for more restrictive measures should there be another um pandemic which we've been told there, there will be so you know it there's definitely something else going on peter that's not um you know there, there's there's a big picture here and our conclusions are that the COVID-19 crisis was a man-made crisis in order to facilitate this centralized monopoly um, over health, which is actually a, which is being used in a, as a stealth, a stealthy way of bringing in a one-world government, a centralized government, through the 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 globalist, um, the supranational entities that control the supranational organizations so you know that might sound like a big conspiracy theory but when you have a man-made um pandemic because uh we know there needn't have been a pandemic because we knew that, that there was early treatment that would have worked um we have but we 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 know now that most the most likely cause of the pandemic that was declared was the uh, a release of a virus from a lab. So it was a virus that was a man-made virus. Um, and then we know that uh, uh, an unsafe intervention was rolled out, a dangerous intervention that's causing harm and no one's talking about it. And we know that our governments are not, um, they're not listening to us when we're raising concerns. Um, and now there's this, this this push for a legally binding centralized uh, control of health, so-called health, but also health and society um, and sovereignty uh, through the World Health Organization. Um, we have to we have to acknowledge there's something else going on here. And if they if our governments are are prepared to keep, you know. Um, going on about telling people to take more more booster vaccines and so on in the face of overwhelming evidence of the harm we've we need to not put our hopes not vest our hopes in these in these structures that are, are more and more showing themselves to be increasingly irrelevant not just the political structures but also the judicial systems which 
um, you know, are so um, uh, in, they're so designed in favor of of uh, corporations and people with lots of money and time uh, than the small person looking for some uh, recourse. And um, and uh, our health systems, you know, which are completely they they seem completely broken and just seem to be the the mechanisms by which big pharma and and um, you know get their drugs into us, you know. So um, unfortunately, so, so, so I guess the, yeah, the the World Council for Health. And I see you have the the poster there just over your your left shoulder. The World Council for Health then. I take it is a pushback against that because you have worked for the World Health Organization yourself. You've mentioned in this interview that you've been a consultant to the WHO. I presume that you have cut ties with them now and the World Council for Health is a pushback against its global influence. So tell us what the WCFH does then. What's its purpose in the world? Thanks very much. Well, um, what, I agree. We are we are the resistance. We are the pushback to that. Um, you know, we've I've certainly seen the beast, <laughs> worked at the World Health Organization, seen how it's influenced, and I know that it's only controls a quarter of its budget. So three quarters of the World Health Organization's budget comes in, and it's billions now. Especially now, they're asking for billions for this this this. It's sort of upgrade in its power. Um, three quarters comes from the uh, voluntary contributions. So if you're a voluntary contributor to the World Health Organization, you can say what you want the money spent on, which is why we have seen the World Health Organization convert from a World Health Organization or a family planning organization to a vaccine organization, the World Vaccine Organization. So um, so we're very concerned with, we, we're a grassroots organization. We have more than 200 grassroots partners across 52 countries. New Zealand is one of them. We have grassroots partners in New Zealand, doctors' organizations and such. And, um, and we are, are establishing a decentralized system of, um, of, uh, of health where we, have country councils in every country and they are responsible for their own health policy and they promote integrative health approaches so not just uh, allopathic uh, big pharma uh, hospital linked treatments but uh, natural remedies and uh, uh, acupuncture and other sorts of remedies and traditional medicines that have practices that have been successfully used for thousands of years so a more holistic approach to health, and uh, and also recognizing that um, that uh, sovereignty and freedom is very integral to health. So people need to be able to um, manage their own, solve their own problems, make their own choices, and so on, without being being told what to do. So that's very integral to our approach. Um, but also, um, and th those um, country councils will then. Uh, meet regularly in the event of, a, of another health emergency or whatever, more frequently to share best practices, to say what's working, uh, what's not working, and to communicate in that way without having a centralized structure that is um, influenced by private individuals and corporations and, and, and powerful countries uh, that then imposes 
their um, their mandates on everybody that have huge impact on individual sovereignty. I know, and, and one should never pay one should never pay too much attention to Wikipedia. But when I was <laughs> doing some research on you, uh, Tess, it came up as uh, the World Council for Health. Uh, described as a pseudo-medical organisation uh, which promotes anti-vax theories. Now, uh, Wikipedia is widely read, but when you see that kind of line written about an organisation which is out to do its absolute best for the population of the world, how do you react to being dissed in that way? Well, we really are up against it. You know, if you think about the powers, it's really a David and Goliath story. And the corporate corporations and these globalists, they have the media under their, you know, under their thumb. And Wikipedia, sadly, as its founder declared uh, in an interview a couple of months ago, you know, he said uh, it's, it's highly influenced by the CIA. And um, so... We can't change that page. You know, you're supposed to be able to edit Wikipedia, but that's it's right. nigh impossible. If they've decided that's what they want the impression to be of you, then it's it's impossible. So we we just take things in our stride and uh, and have a chuckle. It's unfortunate that most people will use Google and will defer their their personal research to Wikipedia, but we just urge people to um to really look at whence it comes and uh, and and we have no conflicts of interest in our in our growing team we take no money from big pharma or any corporations of of any sort and we have the the very best for humanity at heart so we do uh we just we we, we can't change people's minds if they do find their way through google to that wikipedia page but our website is worldcouncilforhealth.org, and if you go straight to that, you can make up your own mind. Okay. You mentioned that you have uh, some colleagues in New Zealand, a, a branch in New Zealand. Uh, are you at liberty to tell us who some of the doctors involved in the well, World Council for Health in New Zealand are, or can't you, because your organisation might be growing, you may not know them? New Zealand Doctors Speaking Out with Science, they have been a partner of ours since the early days. And we are in ongoing communication with them and also with the Wakamanenga Health Council uh, to discuss ways where we can establish a World Council for Health New Zealand. So do stay posted. Um, we are very much hoping to have a New Zealand Council for Health and an Australia Council for Health soon. Very good. I think it was only last week you appeared on what looks like a television chat show, certainly an online chat show. I think it was based in Bath and in, in your hometown. You appeared in a panel discussion with Dr. Peter McCulloch, that uh, is a man very familiar to our listeners. And you, you agreed, the two of you, that Dr. Andrew Wakefield was right all along. And this is in reference to Dr. Wakefield's famous study in the late 1990s about the MMR, vaccine causing autism, a study and a conclusion which was widely rubbished, widely dissed soon after, but appears now to be getting more traction. So a quarter of a century on, you and, and Peter McCullough say that he's right. Can you tell me about how you've, how you've reached that conclusion? 
Yeah, I think many of us doctors around the world who um, have been have endured the the censure and uh, and uh, discrediting and undermining over over just speaking truth about COVID have realised that uh, you know the power of the media, and so revisiting the research of Andrew Wakefield in light of what we now know about the pharmaceutical industry and the failings. Uh, uh, of the regulatory uh, uh, regulations around vaccines, um, we have um, come to the conclusion that it's much safer for for parents to wait before vaccinating their children until um, we can really evaluate each of those vaccines one on one. Because the paper that Andrew Wakefield wrote, along with twelve colleagues who have highly um, uh, you know, who are experts in their field, um, is absolutely reading it today. There's absolutely no reason why it should have received the treatment it received. He basically, um, it was a case series. He reported, they reported what they found, uh, uh, an association between the MMR vaccine and, um, and autism and inflammatory uh, and, and bowel conditions. So Andrew's um, Dr. Wakefield's um, role was as a gastroenterology researcher, and he uh, was examining, um, he was researching bowel conditions. And the parents, the mothers were saying, well, um, this he, my child got this diarrhea um, right after the, the MMR vaccine and, and then regressed developmentally. So what was really interesting was that the children would be at a certain developmental milestone, but after receiving the vaccine, got uh, symptoms of, got bowel symptoms and regressed developmentally and subsequently developed autism. So Andrew Wakefield and his colleagues just said, look, more research is needed. This is, um, you know, concerning. Let's have a look at this. And he was absolutely um, uh, destroyed in the words of his mother um and uh, so so but but that's not all there's a lot more research now so the new research that's coming out shows that andrew wakefield was right because there certainly is you know uh, as peter mccullough said uh there used to be one in ten thousand uh children who got autism now it's one in 30 or, or something like that in the u.s and um so there is um, so much evidence to suggest that this could well be due to the the hyper vaccination. So these there's so many vaccines that are that children are given. It's not just you know I mean you 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 look like my generation or so so you know we we would have had um, you know a, a, a few injections and diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis, and um, and measles, but um, but children nowadays get three or four injections. You know, just tiny little babies will go and they'll get several injections um, at the same time, and and then a fever. A fever is obviously not good for babies. They can have convulsions, and that would give them uh, can have neurological uh, sequelae. So um, there's 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 many reasons to think now that vaccinating children according to the current schedules is 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 not a good idea. Very really not a good idea. And uh, and parents would be their parents and their children would be much better off if um, if they just didn't do this until independent scientists have had a chance to really look into the evidence, which will take years. 
Yes, I heard uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. in conversation with Joe Rogan recently make a similar point. Now, he is the same age as me. We're both 1954 models. And he said, when I was a kid mm-hmm. growing up in the 1960s and 70s, nobody had autism. And I felt exactly the same growing up in New Zealand. He was obviously in very privileged circumstances in the United States. He grew up and said nobody in his class had autism. None of his friends, no, none of his generation had autism. But now autism is everywhere. So something has happened. And that gets you thinking, doesn't it, when uh, there is such a prevalence of a condition that just didn't exist 60 years ago or didn't exist very much 60 years ago. Well, I have three children who are, well, young adults now and, uh, you know, having gone through the schooling system with them, it's extraordinary how many children have special needs. Uh, and certainly, you know, when one compares to one's own childhood, one can just really remark, it's not just autism, but one can really notice how well we were and how sick children are today, you know, Yes, and it's not just children. I think it's the general population as well. Uh, I've talked to uh, New Zealand's medical professionals about this, and you just look at film, television pictures from the 1960s and 70s. We were a skinny population. Now we're a fat population, aren't we? And even though we live longer, I wonder whether we're we're actually healthier. Uh, Although this doctor said... We all smoked back in those days. (laughs) That's why we were skinny. Yeah, we're certainly not healthy. And, you know, it seems like every, we we were attacked on so many fronts. You know, we were attacked with sedentary lifestyle, these terrible jobs that keep us pinned to screens um, and isolated. And when you think about children, you know, there's so much emerging evidence to show that Mobile phones are so bad for children. They, well, they're bad for all of us. They're so addictive. I mean, you just see people walking into poles all over the place, you know, with their mobile phones in front of them. If you pass a bus stop, everybody's glued. Uh, and and particularly for children. Now, the World Health Organization, I believe, has just come out to say that tablets are great for education and children should all be given tablets. Absolutely no way. Um, we really must um, limit the time children spend on uh, on uh, this this technology, it's highly addictive. And when it comes to phones, you know, I, I've just been thinking we wouldn't give children crack cocaine at the age of two, three, four, five, or six, or even we wouldn't give it to anyone. So why are we giving children something that's highly addictive that's never been tested for safety? Mobile phones—they were never tested for safety in, in relation to health, you know. Um, and um, well, apart from the one, you know, the 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 the, the test of of the international uh, non-ionizing radiation uh, protection uh, commission, the the ICNO, that 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 organization that's also got conflicts, huge conflicts of interest. You know, they they measured whether your 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 head got hot uh, with a cell phone uh, next to it, and then they said, oh, not more than uh six minutes or whatever 30 minutes in a day i can't remember but they only looked at heat they never looked at what the other effects are and uh, and so you know it's very concerning and we do need to raise awareness about um, mobile phone use for children and try and limit as much as possible not just for them but for us too because of the major impact on our health 
Yes, let's conclude this conversation. I really thank you for your time uh, this afternoon in the UK. Can you give me an overview of the Western world's state of health and more importantly, what you think the prospects are for its future? Are we going to see more and more countries like the United States having a decreasing life expectancy? Our life expectancy in the last 60 years has increased all the way up to 80 and beyond in New Zealand. In the US, it's reducing now. Do you believe that, sadly, that might be the way of the future unless we do something about the way we conduct health and about the way we live? Yeah, there are two uh, two sides to that question. There's, there's, uh, there's longer-term health and there's immediate-term health. And I believe that humanity is in grave danger because we live in a, in a world at the moment where we have an international health organization supported by supranational entities that have profit motive uh, to that, that support gain-of-function research. So there is immediate risk to health if we have organizations with profit motives uh, able to create a, a self-perpetuating pandemic industry. So they can, they can create a bug, they can create the, the interventions to treat a bug and mandate that everybody takes it and, and lock everybody up. And uh, so we, we, we have an acute crisis uh, or, or a semi-acute crisis in that that will impact health and longevity um, in, the, in, the, in the short to medium term. And we're already seeing it with this 20% excess deaths um in many countries uh around the world so there's that and then there is the the uh, the longer term uh issue not just caused by the covid vaccines because they certainly will reduce our um our longevity um because of the multitude of uh, uh problems they cause through inflammation and clotting and so on um, but uh, but also through through the other mechanisms, this convenience, uh, you know, where the, the fast food, the obesity, the mobile phones, the five G. I know people don't uh, don't really want to even look at the five G issue right now. That's another unregulated industry that has health impacts, not just through um, through its uh, through the, the physics of it, but actually through the surveillance as well, because if we're not free, we're not happy, we take antidepressants and uh, and we we die earlier. So, um, so there are many, many uh, reasons, but um, I think the world in a year's time is going to look completely different and we need people to, to realize uh, what's at threat. I encourage you to, to have a look at our great free set campaign or free set challenge. Um, there, is a, there, is a real, um, there is a real ideology uh, among those who are uh, in positions of power, and I'm not talking about our governments, I'm talking about whoever's controlling and influencing them, um, that, that we are useless, Eaters and uh, and just products to be exploited. So as long as that ideology is allowed to prevail, and as long as we do not respond and create something better, um, then uh, I, I, then I personally think uh, humanity's days are numbered. Certainly in the form that we're in now, um, because uh, transhumanism is the is the way forward. Merging merging people with with uh, machines is what. Um, the the uh, the globalists wish 
So that, that might be more than you more than you bargain for in terms of an answer. But I do encourage you to you and your and your listeners to have a look at the resources on our website. We have a, a policy brief on the threats of unregulated digitalization, the threats to health and sovereignty. We also have a policy brief on the World Health Organization monopoly power grab. And if you want to get the big picture and understand really what the threats are to humanity. I urge you to read those and then don't get depressed about it. Rather step away from fear and join us on this journey towards a better way and really envisioning and creating the sorts of world that we want to live in. Dr. Tess Laurie, thank you so much for your time this afternoon here on Reality Check Radio, worldcouncilforhealth.org. I was getting very depressed during your last answer there, Tess, but thank you for finishing it uh, on an upbeat note. I really appreciate your time this afternoon. Wonderful talking to you. Thank you very much, Peter. We really can do this. So, you know, this is an opportunity for great and positive change. Peter Williams from One O'Clock on RCR, Reality Check Radio. 